0: September is a busy time of year here in Loudoun with the races and all. It's also, though, been a very meaningful time of year for the people of Israel throughout their history. It continues to be for contemporary Judaism. We talked about it a little bit last week. September 4th to the 6th was Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year on the the religious calendar of Judaism. Last weekend was Yom Kippur. And we talked about that here together last week. And presently, we are in the midst of the Jewish festival of Sukkot. I almost opened the service today by saying, Happy Sukkot, but I thought some of you might have thought I was cursing at you or something. <laughs> I have no idea what that means. Sukkot is uh, translated in our Bibles as the Feast of Tabernacles. And Sukkot began at sundown this past Wednesday, and it will continue until sunda- sundown this coming Wednesday. And when these festivals come up, I'm sort of reminded, there's this, I don't know if it's an American ethic, if it's a European ethic, if it's just somehow in our DNA, but we have great suspicion, don't we, in our culture about frivolity. We're worried about that, I don't know why, maybe not everybody is, but there's something about our work ethic in America, even in the church, for years and years and years, you worked for six days and then the seventh day, did you not work? No, you worked. You just did a different kind of work. You worked for God. Like if you're ever sitting down doing nothing, what? you're a waste of space. Frivolity, it bothers us. And we really do miss out on some things with that latent suspicion of frivolity in our culture. I love the Feast of Tabernacles. I love to read about it. I've never, ever experienced Sukkot. But I love reading about it because it was the one feast during which God commanded the Israelites, commanded the Israelites to party. It was like a a mandatory camp meeting for some of you who grew up going to camp meeting, except we fill our camp meeting with a lot of of singing and Bible study and sermons and all that sort of thing. They didn't fill theirs with any of that. It was like a mandatory camp meeting. They had to come to Jerusalem eventually, but initially to the tabernacle, and they had to pitch their tents all around it, and had to live in tents around the tabernacle. And instead of a week filled with preaching and Bible study, it was a week filled with eating (laughs) and Laughing. And general joyousness. That's all they did. Matter of fact, the first two days, the first and last day of the festival, they were allowed to only veg. They weren't even allowed to do any work, anything that looked like work. They were just supposed to eat and make merry. And that's it. Sukkot. They gathered their fall harvest and then they made their way to wherever the tabernacle was, eventually to Jerusalem. They lived in tents and they threw a God-honoring party. And the first and last days they did nothing but eat and laugh and sing. Here's the command. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 13. Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 13. Celebrate the festival of tabernacles, Sukkot, for seven days after you've gathered the produce of your threshing floor and your wine press. Be joyful at your festival. You hear that? Be joyful at your festival. You, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levites, the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns. Everybody was supposed to come. So, if we're in the story of Ruth, and Ruth was gleaning in the fields of Boaz, and he was allowing that to happen, gather up Ruth and take Thank to the tabernacle, and throw a party that she gets to enjoy as well. This was for everybody. For seven days, celebrate the festival to the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose. For the Lord your God will bless you in all your harvest, and in all the work of your hands, and your joy will be complete. It was time for a party, because remember we talked last week about Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. The the high priest went into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, and the people weren't sure he was going to come out alive, because if there was sin in Israel, and the high priest went into the presence of God, God would strike him down for the sin that was undealt with in Israel. And so it's fearful when he goes in there. I don't know what's going to happen. Is God going to accept the sacrifice? Is there hidden sin in Israel? Is there something we haven't dealt with? And he comes out alive. And now it's time to throw a party because God accepted us and sin has been eradicated and we bring in the harvest and we throw a festival. This world is a trying and it's a hostile place oftentimes, isn't it? And so many people on earth seem so committed to the ethics of evil. They seem so sold out to worldly values and principles that they just help make this place even worse than it would be anyway. And so we tend to place great emphasis in the church on enduring trials, on persevering through suffering, On holding on to hope and all those other sorts of things. And I'm glad we do that because life is not always pleasant. And we worship a God who ended His pre-resurrected life in a very painful and horrible way. This is a real world. And Christianity and Judaism before it speaks to the world as it is. But the world is not all doom and gloom, right? I mean, it's not all bad. The world is full of times and seasons of joy and of celebration. And these glimpses of joyousness, these seasons of peace and prosperity, these moments of rapture, they're not abnormalities in the economy of God. In fact, these fleeting experiences on this side of eternity will one day fill the new heaven and the new earth. In many ways, we can endure the trials and tribulations we have to face on this side of eternity because of the joy set before us. And it's important for us to recognize... And we should do it as often as we are able to do it, that the joy for which we hope is not all out there on the other side of death. The kingdom of God has broken into this world already. Granted, there's a lot of darkness, but there would be no light if it hadn't started to break in, and there is light here. The joyous realities of God's kingdom are breaking in here as well. Whenever we can rejoice... We must rejoice. And if we learn nothing else from Israel, and I hope we learn a lot more than that, it's that when we can throw a party, we should. And when we can celebrate, we should. Jewish tradition has understand, understood these commands of God to feast and to party at appropriate times and in appropriate ways. In interesting ways, I'm going to give you two quotations. These come from the Talmud. The first one is from the Palestinian Talmud. The Talmud is a collection of Jewish uh, reflections on Scripture and debates over Scripture, how to read it, how to interpret it, how to live it out, and so on. It's an enormous volume. I have the Babylonian Talmud myself. It takes two shelves of my bookshelf. I don't have the Palestinian Talmud, which this first quotation comes from, but that's where it comes from anyway. A rabbi in the Palestinian Talmud says this On Judgment Day, A man will have to give account for every good thing which his eyes saw and he did not enjoy. On Judgment Day, a man will have to give account for every good thing which his eyes saw and he did not enjoy. I like the second one even better. It's from the Babylonian Talmud. A rabbi named Samuel says this, Whoever engages continually in fasting is called a sinner. Whoever engages continually in fasting is called a sinner. Last week we began a three-part sermon series entitled Embracing Priesthood. And we're going to continue that series today. Embracing Priesthood. Last week I explained that Peter's language of priesthood suggests that just as the Levites and the priests of ancient Israel were scattered among the tribes of Israel with no tribal territory of their own, we, the church, have been scattered among the nations of the world to be priests of God among them. And I maintain that part of embracing our identity as priest is embracing the reality that we Christians are a dispersed people among the nations of the earth. We have to embrace that. We have to stop and resist the impulse to build cities and to build nations that are Christian because God doesn't want us to have a tribal territory on earth. He wants us to be dispersed amongst the nations as priests. I also challenged each of us as members of God's church to seek to minister and to pastor at least one unbelieving person or family who lives in our sphere of influence over this next year. That was my challenge. And I I, I imagine that not everybody heard that challenge as a positive challenge, an exciting one. I understand that priesthood is a solemn responsibility and that challenge may have been frightening or even frustrating to some who were here. There might have been a part of each of us who responded to Peter instinctively by thinking, Seriously, Peter, seriously, priest, you had to call us priests. I don't want to be a priest. I don't even think I should be a priest. Thanks a lot, pal. You know, some of you thought that. I thought it when I read it. And I'm a pastor. <laughs> I know. There's great blessing in serving others as priests, but there's a great cost as well. But to be called priest is not all challenge. And it's not all responsibility either. There is great joy and reason for celebration in Peter's revelation as well. Something is happening in that language that changes everything about this world and about our place in it. Last week we discussed embracing priesthood as embracing our dispersion amongst the peoples and nations of the world. Today we'll celebrate our inclusion in the priesthood of God as we come to embrace our diversity as Christian priests, our diversity. So if you have a Bible, I'll invite you, maybe you're already there, I'll invite you to turn with me to the New Testament epistle of 1 Peter. We're in chapter 2 in the series we began in June, and we're in this little mini-series called Embracing Priesthood. 1 Peter chapter 2, and I'll be reading verses 4 through 10. First Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4 while I'm thinking about it, it just occurred to me, uh, we will be postponing our baptismal service next week because our one baptismal can- candidate, the whole family can't be here that weekend and we don't want to do that. So we're probably going to push it to the next weekend. I'll let you know for certain. Um, but we- it's coming. But it won't be next weekend. Okay. I've said it. Now I remembered. First 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And we'll end there. What is the church? Who are the people of God supposed to be? What are the roles and responsibilities God has given to His people in this world? What does it mean to be the people of God, the body of Jesus, citizens of the kingdom of heaven? Not only has Peter suggested that we are a dispersed people, exiles, priests living among the nations of the earth, but we're also a diverse people. And I'm taking this a bit out of order, and that's because I'm saving. So for those of you who are reading that going, I want to hear about this cornerstone stuff. I want to hear about living stones being built into a temple. I want to hear what these sacrifices are that we... Well, wait, that's next week. So we'll be there. But this week I want to focus really on the end of this because I think we have to get this straight in our minds before we're going to really appreciate everything that's in here. It's important to note that 1 Peter was written primarily to non-Jewish Christians, to Gentiles who had come to faith in Jesus. And I mentioned that the first week of our series. And that becomes most clear in the letter itself right here in verse 10 of this passage. Look at verse 10 again. Once you were not a people but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The Jewish people had been chosen by God millennia before Peter wrote these words in 1 Peter. They had been selected out of the nations of the earth to be God's people. And one tribe out of the tribes of Israel had been called out to be special servants of God's temple and priests for God's people. And the priesthood in ancient Israel it was the most exclusive club in town. Nothing more exclusive than the priesthood. Even the monarchy, even the kings were more diverse in their origins than the people of the priesthood. Only Levites could serve as caretakers of the tabernacle and later the temple. And only the descendants of one Levite, Aaron, the brother of Moses, could serve as priests. And only one gender of Aaron's descendants could be priests, males. Much of this has been transformed in the kingdom of God, according to Peter. In the kingdom of God inaugurated in Jesus, all citizens are priests. Now, to an extent, the Protestant reformers in the 1500s, they challenged the Roman Catholic Church with this realization. They believed that Peter's language of priesthood implied that all Christians have equal responsibility to minister before God, and have equal access to God without the need of any human mediation. And so that became the priesthood of all believers for Martin Luther. And it has forever distanced Protestant Christianity from Roman Catholic Christianity, though Roman Catholicism is somewhat different today. Not entirely, though. And I do believe that that realization is appropriate here. It's appropriate to mention it. And I agree with the monk, Martin Luther, that the Roman Catholic Church of his day had failed to appreciate this reality in their assumption that the priesthood was a special caste within the Christian church that mediated the grace of God to the rest. I think Luther was right that the Roman Catholic Church was wrong about that. However, it's important to note that in Peter's context, when he reminded the church that we are priests, a royal priesthood, this insistence was... A racial observation. It was a racial observation. And it had implications for what the gospel meant when it implied that all Christians are one in Christ. Formerly, priests had to be of one nation, Israel, of one tribe within that nation, Levi, of one family within that tribe, Aaron, and of one gender within that family, male it is not insignificant that Peter was calling Gentile Christians, priests. In the kingdom of God, people from every nation on earth would hear and respond to the call of God and Jesus, and in following Jesus, they would be part of a royal priesthood. This may be one of the ways Peter was understanding what the Apostle Paul called in the book of Galatians, our oneness in Christ. So I'm going to read these two passages for you. I hope you can see their similarities. In the Apostle Paul's words in Galatians 3, verses 26 to 29, we hear this. So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. Nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And now in our passage in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. All are priests in the kingdom of God. That's radical. It doesn't sound radical to us, right? But it's radical. Peter's emphasis was on the bringing together of two ethnicities that had been at war with each other through the majority of biblical history, Jews and Gentiles. Paul went a bit further, or at least he was a bit more specific than even Peter was, to speak of social equality, which is slave and free, um, and gender equality, male and female, of the kingdom of God. But in the end, they were singing the same gospel tune. And it is one of the tearing down of the walls of hostility that have divided humanity and still continues to divide the world outside of the church, and sadly, sometimes even within it. I had the privilege of being part of a writing team that explored the implications of this language of oneness in Jesus. And the book is actually uh, coming out this October. You can find it actually on Amazon. This one I'm not self-publishing. This is really being published. And I want to share a brief excerpt from the chapter that I wrote in that text. So it's not published yet. I hope this my publisher might be angry. I don't know. He's a friend on Facebook. Maybe he'll hear this. Here we go. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, Neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The good news of Jesus is a message of reconciliation, justice, and mutuality. The good news of Jesus intends to tear down the walls of hostility that have separated us. The good news of Jesus describes a kingdom so unlike the world in which we live that it takes remarkable imagination to envision it. The heart of Christianity longs for a world without national and ethnic competition, a world without social and economic disparity, and a world that comprehends male and female together as beings made in the image of God. If this is God's mission... If this is God's intention for the world, if this forms the very heart of what it means to be a Christian, then we who claim to be followers of Jesus must teach and live out these values. We must imagine together what it means for there to be in Christ no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. That's the end of that quotation. Now, it might seem, and I'm aware of this, that I'm making a bit of a mountain out of a molehill. I mean, is it really that big a deal that Peter called non-Jewish followers of Jesus priests and placed them in equal standing among the Jewish Christians in his context? Maybe that not to us. I suppose not to us. Maybe that's not a big deal. I mean, most of us are Gentiles. We assume we're equal with Jewish Christians and we don't really think about it too much. But we must appreciate the dynamics of the world of the first century. The Jewish people had been chosen by God and set apart by Him from the other nations on the earth. That was a core piece of their identity. And throughout their history, they had been at war with one Gentile nation or another. At the time Peter wrote these words, the Jewish people were exiles living in their own homeland. I mean, they lived in a small portion of the land given to them by God. But they were ruled by Gentiles. They were taxed by Gentiles. They were persecuted by Gentiles. And they had to submit even their worship of God to Gentile authority. They weren't even able to execute the law of Moses fully without Gentile permission. And even more, Jesus was a Jewish Messiah. He was Jewish, born in the line of David. And all of His earliest disciples too, they were Jewish. And from all appearances, appearances, early Christianity was a Jewish religion. But then Gentiles started to hear the gospel of Jesus. We can thank Paul for much of it, but there was others too who shared it. And and they flocked to Jesus at such a furious pace that in not too many decades, there would be far more Gentiles in the church than Jews. And the influx of those Gentile Christians had just begun in Peter's day. It's not to say that the communities that he wrote to in 1 Peter wouldn't have had any Jewish members, but it's very clear, based on the language of 1 Peter, that the majority of those people were Gentiles. They were non-Jewish people. And the writings of the New Testament reveal that the earliest Christians, they tended to think of the Jewish Christians as a distinct and special group within the church because of their election and their history with God. So for Peter to call all Christians priests, irrespective of their national origins, and for Paul to have all called all Christians one in Jesus, in spite of their race or their social status or their gender, those kinds of comments had the potential to turn the Christian world upside down. Literally. I mean, Gentiles were not students of the law of Moses. They didn't know what they were doing. They came from pagan backgrounds. They had worship practices and ethics that were prohibited by God. And they were brought up with values and beliefs that were in direct contradiction with the word and the will of God. We can't call these people priests. These people need education, right? I mean, they need some sort of a catechism or some sort of a trial period before we start calling them priests. Education and upbringing were different based on social class and gender as well. Surely, these people needed to convert to Judaism first, right? As sort of a first step towards becoming Christians. Or they had to receive some education. Or they had to go through some sort of a trial period. Not for Peter. And not for Paul. And this is part of the messiness and the joyousness of the kingdom of God. It's messy and it's wonderful because irrespective of our race, irrespective of our place in society, irrespective of our gender, we all come to the same table. We've all been given the same mission. We all stand in the same position before God and before the world. And we are all priests of God for the nations. Now, the world, when it looks at the church, and and, uh, let's face it, oftentimes in the church we look through worldly eyes, but when the world looks at the church, it sees us as it sees itself. Lots of different people. Europeans, Americans, Africans, Asians, Latin Americans, blue-collar workers, white-collar workers, homeless, poor, wealthy, middle-class, men, women, married, single, parents, not parents... And worldly wisdom tells us this is our culture, right? The only way that kind of people are going to get along is if they really don't talk to each other about anything that matters, right? Political correctness. I mean, when you have that many different kinds of people with that many different backgrounds and that many different opinions, the best thing to do is never talk about politics, never talk about religion, just kind of live and let live, right? That's a pluralistic society. That's how you make that kind of a diverse community work. I mean, if, if we actually talk, if we actually eat at the same table, if we actually treat each other like family, if we actually try and reach out and build relationships with all these different kinds of people, I mean, we're going to eat each other alive. That's what the world says, right? That as messy as diversity may be at times, and as challenging as our differences can make life together, we in the community of faith are being freed from these fallen, earthly structures that have divided humanity throughout all of our history. In the community of faith, these distinctions do not matter any longer, at least not essentially, because we are all people freed from the tyranny of sin and corruption by Jesus. We all have the same vocation. We are priests of God. And we are all equal members of the body of Jesus. What the world separates the church brings together. What the world tears apart, the church heals. Fallen humanity lives lives separated from God and from each other. Even in unity, there's great disparity. But citizens of the kingdom of God are living into a world in which we are reconciled to God and to each other. Jesus died to make us one. And the Holy Spirit of God has been and will continue to be working in us to make us one in Jesus. To tear down the walls of hostility that normally divide us. To make us all a royal priesthood. Last week I challenged us to embrace our priesthood by finding one unbelieving person or one unbelieving family that we could pastor over the next year and to do it through prayer and through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Today I challenge us to war against anything in our lives together. Anything that works against the mission of God to make us one in Jesus. I'll challenge you as members of this congregation, as Martin Luther challenged the church of his day, not to allow my position as pastor to convince you that I have some sort of access to God that you don't have. That I'm some sort of a mediator between God and you. The only authority I have in this community is the authority that you have given to me by inviting me to be your pastor. You don't need me to get to God. I'm a servant of God to support our community in our journey to follow Jesus, but I have no special access to Him that you don't have. Let's resist anything that would make us think otherwise. I challenge us as members of this congregation to resist those worldly impulses in our culture and in each of us that would cause us to pull away from members in this community because of race or social status or gender. I challenge us to lay down those things in culture and in us that push us to treat other people as a means to an end or as objects to be used or as obstacles to be overcome. We have to turn away from deception and manipulation. We have to speak the truth to each other and seek not to use each other for our own benefit. We have to turn our backs on all those things that make other people objects and things for our own use, like pornography and extramarital lust and its problem in our world, despite the popular imagination, not only for men but for women as well. We must commit to resist the urge to avoid those with whom we don't naturally connect. We are all priests, and we are one in Jesus. And I challenge us to celebrate our diversity, our difference. We must learn to appreciate our differences and to learn from each other. We have to resist that urge to surround ourselves with those who are most like us and who we like most. We have to lay down the belief that there's only one way of seeing things, that there's only one way of doing things. And we have to celebrate the many ways in which we can partner in the mission of God together and live out our submission to the Word and the will of God. Everything we do as a church should emphasize our oneness and celebrate the diversity of us who have been called out of the world and into the kingdom of God to be His priests in a fallen place you realize that's the first experience where I I mean, I I watched this show I'm not sure I'm proud I watched it, but I watched um, the the Legend the Sleepy Hollow show that just started, and I watched that thing, and and again, it's like a million other shows about the end times, right? I mean, they're all about doom and gloom and horror and and trial and tribulation, you know, the Great Tribulation, all that. I'm not saying it's not rooted in Revelation, but why why is the end of time for Christians so dark and so dismal and so scary and so violent and we just want to be raptured so we don't have to, it's going to be horrible and i'm not saying it's going to be great not all of it but we do realize that the book of revelation itself and the rest of the scriptures say that the first experience we will have when god comes in his glory in the new heaven and the new earth will be a party the wedding feast of the lamb a final and completed passover celebration It's those living in sin that are terrified of the coming of God. Those who are being made holy by the blood of Jesus, we're not terrified. For some reason, when the world speaks of the end times, it's horrible, and perhaps that's because of where they are with God. But followers of Jesus must recognize that eternal life will begin with a feast and a party that will put Sukkot and any other human celebration to shame. And all who follow Jesus will join in the festivities together at a single table, as equals. No matter our pasts, no matter our race, no matter our wealth or our poverty, no matter our gender, no matter our temptations, no matter our weaknesses, no matter our personalities, no matter our physical makeup, all who have repented of their sins and followed Jesus will enter the kingdom of heaven as equals. And God will throw a party on that day that will make us wonder why we thought sin was so fun. That party will make us wonder why we clung to the pleasures of this earth so tightly when that is what was before us. Let's begin to imagine and to live today as a community the kinds of lives together that will fill the whole of creation when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness. Are we one in Christ? Do we believe that? Or do we continue to bring with us the walls of hostility that have divided humanity from the beginning of the fall till now? with us, into our worship and into our community? Do we let those values guide how we interrelate with one another, how we work together, how we love each other? In Christ there is no slave or free, Jew or Gentile, male and female, for all are one in Jesus. And in the words of Peter, we are all priests. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. No matter who we are, We are priests of God. The highest position in ancient Israel. Higher than even the kings. And that's us. Not because we deserve it. Not because we earned it. But because God has called us. And God is making us holy. And God is bringing us back together as one. Amazing. I hope you can celebrate that today. Would you stand with me as we pray?